Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What a job he did against all odds. Thank you, Nigel. Nigel Farage and Donald Trump. They share a fervor, a following, and a friendship. The UK's alternative special relationship is a friendship which has taken Nigel Farage to the White House far more than any other UK politician in recent years, more even than many foreign leaders. So who better to tell us what Donald Trump is like when the cameras are off, the norms he's willing to break, and, as another unpredictable election draws near, what's his Trump card? Wow. What a job he did. Call me Mr. Brexit. Thank you very much indeed. I'm Christopher Hope, the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, and this is The Trump Card, a three-part series in which I'll be asking the Britain who knows President Trump the best if his friend has the winning hand or if the odds are stacked against him. Starting with episode one, Donald Trump, the man. Right, let's do it. We could gossip all day, you see. No, but we really could, you know. Nigel, the microphones are rolling. Do you want to say who you are for anyone who's been half asleep for the past decade? Hello, I'm Nigel Farage, UK politician and broadcaster, and somebody who fell into the Trump orbit back in 2016, uh, and I got involved with his presidential election campaign. I predicted he'd win. Everyone thought it was bonkers, but he did. Let's unpack that, Nigel Farage. Tell us about the moment you met him. For the first time, face-to-face, yeah, so you and Trump. We'd had a sort of checkered start because I was in New York, uh, and I'm talking now 2014, and I got a message from the Trump group that he wanted to meet me. And we couldn't make it happen. We could not make it happen. Um, and the person that approached me from the Trump organization said, oh, he's been watching your speeches in the European Parliament, and that's why he wants to meet you. So we didn't get a chance to meet, uh, and that was unfortunate. But as 2015 came along, and he announced that he was going to run for the presidency, um, I got some more info hmm. that he'd actually been watching my stuff. It was late 15, because of course, yes. Yes. early May 15 was your moment. You got 12% in the polls at the election. You did really well. You won one seat. Well, I think 14 was a bigger moment, really. I mean, in a 14, sense. 14, 15, yeah, that was the Euro, I mean, in Euro sense, elections. In a sense, you know, the fact that UKIP was the first party that wasn't Labour or the Conservatives mm. since 1906 mm. to win a national election, which we did in the European elections, I think that was, uh, that was really the moment, in a sense, that that America woke up to, who is, who's this Nigel Farage guy? Yeah, and he saw that and thought, I he want a bit of that. that. And thought, that's interesting. Okay, so, so we're, anyway, we're in late 15. So we're late 15, and, you know, he's announced that he's going to have a run at the presidency. And a colleague of mine, in fact, somebody who'd worked for me called Raheem Kassam, went out to watch Trump speaking around the country. And he said to me, Nigel, he said, he said this is real. He said, I can see something happening on the ground just like it was with you in 2012, 2013, when UKIP were bubbling away. He said, no one in New York is noticing. The media don't get this. They all think it's incredibly funny. He said, I've seen the audiences at these meetings and something's going on. So it was Raheem Kassam that really put me onto the fact that he was having a real go. 
So I kind of, as that went on, I got bits of feedback uh, that the Trump guys, you know, like what I was doing, agreed with the messaging. Uh, and and, and that, I thought, well, that's great. Then what happened was Brexit. Brexit happens in June. Trump very publicly saying that he thought it was the right thing yeah. to happen. And that's before the vote. He flew in, didn't he? And said before Brexit yeah, day, that's he right. thought and, and we'll, he, we'll he, go for Brexit. He said it he? was the right thing to do. Um, and then we went off. Gosh, you'll love this story. It's, it's really against myself, but never mind. So we go off to the convention in Cleveland, the Republican convention. Ever since I was a kid, watching Ronald Reagan in 1980 at the Republican convention with the balloons coming down from the ceiling, the ticker tape. I mean, I, I wanted us to do this at Brexit party rallies. But we, we, never, we nearly got there yeah. with the lights and By the music. By the end, it was nearly there. We nearly got there. Um, so I'd always thought, wow, what a wonderful opportunity. So I went... I went to the convention with uh, with Andy Wigmore, who'd been sort of Aaron Banks's right hand man, uh, you know, during many of the things things that we did together in the referendum. And it was the night of the Trump speech, and it didn't finish till about half eleven at night. Uh, and it was a long. His acceptance speech was a long speech. I've spent my entire life in business looking at the untapped potential in projects and in people all over. And if I'm honest, it wasn't that good. It was a bit rambling. now what I want to do for our country. I wasn't massively impressed by that particular speech. So we leave the convention center. It's quarter to midnight. I said to Andy, let's go for a drink. So we go off and find some bar and we have a drink and we get back to the hotel we're staying in and it's four o'clock in the morning. And I said, I've got a really good idea. Why don't we have one quick one before we go to bed? So at four o'clock, <laughs> we go into the bar at four o'clock of this hotel in Cleveland, and the bar's packed. It's full. And it's the Mississippi delegation. Not the governor. He's in bed. But the Mississippi delegation. Governor Brian. Yeah. The Mississippi delegation have got a flight out at 7 a.m., and they've decided it's just not worth going to bed. <laughs> so my kind of people. We walk in there, and they say, oh, my God. The governor of the state, Phil Bryant, he loves what you do. He's the biggest pro-Brexit, pro-British American you're ever going to meet. And we'd like to invite you down to Mississippi to come and visit. So off we go. Mid-August, and we're going down to Mississippi. What I didn't know was that basically Andy Wigmore and Aaron Banks and Phil Bryant had spoken... And I kind of decided if I was coming to Mississippi, they'd time a Trump meeting in Mississippi at the same time. So I agreed that I would speak at a dinner, a private sort of fundraising dinner. For Trump. For Trump. Trump. For Trump. So we turned up. We hadn't met yet. We hadn't met. And there were three events on the evening. The first was a cocktail party for kind of high-end Republicans from Mississippi, supporters, donors. And at that time, Trump was going around America calling himself Mr. Brexit. Call me Mr. Brexit. He was saying night after night at the rallies. So he walks into the room. He goes in with Jeff Sessions, who, of course, would become his attorney general. Trump and Sessions and Bryant walk in to the room. Trump gives a little speech. And he says, hey, I've been going around the country calling myself Mr. Brexit, but I think the real Mr. Brexit's in the room. So I walk up. He gives me a bear hug. 
Uh, we then go off to the dinner, and I speak at the dinner. Six, seven, eight minutes, whatever it was. Then Trump speaks at the dinner, and he calls me back on stage. Uh, he calls me back and says, hey, you know what this guy's done is amazing. You know, if he can do it, if, 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 if he can do it, having been written off for years by everybody and called a madman, then surely, you know, we can do it here in the USA. And I thought that was fantastic. Then the exciting part of the evening came. We're off to the basketball stadium where there's a Trump rally. They've been queuing since six in the morning, and I am super excited. So we arrive, and the warm-ups have begun. Pastor Mark is on the platform, warming the crowd up. Uh, I mean, absolutely packed, and a big buzz. I was very excited. And Trump's due on stage at about 7.30, and at 7.20, Stephen Miller, who had worked for Sessions for years, so I knew him well. So Miller comes up to me and says, Nigel, he says, um, we'd like you to speak. I said, what? I said, are you joking? No, he said, he, he said, no, 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 Donald would like you to speak. I think, well, hang on a second. I've been given 10 minutes notice here. There's a huge crowd of Mississippians. It's a US presidential election. So I start racking my head. I think, hang on, foreign interference, I've got to be really careful here. Uh, what I say, not for my sake, but more for the campaign's sake. And I'm, I'm slightly in a little bit of panic. And at that point, Trump comes over, taps me on the shoulder, he says, Gene Nigel, this is so good of you, so good of you. Thank you for agreeing to do this, and walks off. So <laughs> I'm chucked into there. So I turned to Andy and Aaron, I said, oh, my, I, can't, well, I won't, won't say what I said. Um, <laughs> but I was in quite a state of... of, of you know, flummox really about it. <laughs> so I'm very quickly working through in my head what I'm going to do. Um, and then we're ushered through. Trump takes the stage. Donald's going to introduce you. I said, what? What do you mean? Do- Donald doesn't introduce anybody. It doesn't work like that. So there I am standing beneath the stage and Trump's up there and he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to a man who against our odds, despite horrible name-calling. <laughs> this goes on. Please welcome Mr. Nigel Farage. So up the steps I go and bush. Mr. Nigel Farage. It was... Um, the message, in a way, wasn't difficult. The message was ignore the opinion polls. You know, on the day of the Brexit referendum, they showed remain 10 points ahead. I must admit... Even I got a bit taken in that day by that one. Ignore the opinion pollsters. Ignore the media. You know, they're all on one side of this. This is all about who turns out and votes on the day. And, and I had to work out, how do I get around the what I can and what I can't say? So I said, it's not for me to tell you how to vote in this election. And the crowd started going, Trump, 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 Trump. <laughs> Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm hearing you. Uh, but I will say this. Is who I wouldn't vote for <laughs> in this election. I said, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. <laughs> <laughs> and then there were allegations of corruption going on within the Clinton campaign and the Clinton Foundation. And then I said... The emails hadn't emerged yet. The emails hadn't appeared yet. No, but there was lots of buzz and lots of gossip that things were being done badly and wrong. And then I said... 
I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if she paid me. <laughs> so I hadn't said vote Trump, which would have been, I think that would have been wrong for me to do it, but I got round it that way. So in the end, I thought the whole thing was most enormous fun and I loved it, did my bit. And this is an interesting point about Trump as a person uh, that perhaps the haters will find difficult to believe. He then shook me by the hand. He said, thank you, thank you so much for doing this. He said, you will be my friend for life. And I left the stage. Trump continued. And that was the beginning of the relationship that I have with him. But the point about you will be my friend for life, and this is interesting. You know, Trump is a... Trump is a rough, tough outsider from New York, from Queens, New York. He's been in the real estate business. He's had to combat the mafia. He's had to deal with, I mean, all sorts of very difficult, very... I mean, he's a tough guy. You don't survive in that world unless you are a tough guy. Um, He doesn't spend much of his life writing or huge amounts of time reading or busy sending emails. He doesn't do those kind of things. You know, he meets people, he makes decisions, he trusts them, he doesn't trust them, he does a deal, he doesn't do a deal. And I'm sure he's a difficult person to do a business deal. I'm absolutely certain of that. But I've subsequently met people who have been lifelong friends of Trump's, golfing mates of Trump's, uh, other people who've been, been in business with him. And they all say the same thing. He's the best friend they've ever had. Even as president, out of the blue, they get phone calls asking how they are and what's going on and how the kids. So that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with somebody not from the world of academia, not from the world of politics. You're dealing with somebody who, if, if, if he thinks you're a friend, he becomes a friend of yours. And, and, and that is something, certainly that I've seen over the course of the last four years, he, doesn't forget, he does not forget his friends. And you still are his friend for life. Oh, absolutely. Because you have been critical in part in some of his policies. look, I I think in friendship it's important that you can be critical. Um, What I have tried to do, very studiously, um, is not to betray private conversations. Which you haven't, to be fair. Which which I haven't. Because I've asked you every single time I've seen you what he's told you, and you've told me nothing. I mean, I'll talk in generality Mm. about the man and how I find him and and some of the little things he said, as I've just done a moment ago. But I'm not going to betray, you know, debates that we we may or may not have had. Makes me laugh sometimes, the press sneeringly write, you know, Mr. Trump appears to be very well informed on Brexit. (laughs) I'm not commenting on any of that. But as I say, if you're part of a team, you're part of a team. And... I found the family to be very much the same. You know, you meet the sons, you meet the daughters, you get to know them. You know, if they trust you, you trust them. And, that, and that's how they went. It is an incredibly tight family network that he's got. Very, very, you know, the firm, the Trump firm is very, very tight indeed. So that was how it started. Who's the brains in the family? Well, I mean, I think Eric has got a remarkable business brain. I think, uh, I mean, Ivanka is a phenomenon, a marketing phenomenon in terms of what she's done. With her very before she came in. Oh, extraordinary! Um, Don Junior is the most political. You know, very, very committed politically, and I'd be surprised in years to come if he doesn't have a serious run for something. And the big difference, I think, between last time and this time is that Melania, who really kept pretty out of it in 2016, and who I must admit, the day of the inauguration, you know, I mean, she stood on that platform and. 
everybody talked about her dress and compared it to the Kennedy dress. But I don't think people were seeing her face. She did not look happy at all. You know, she'd not married into this. And, and to be thrust suddenly upon the world stage as First Lady, it must have been very difficult. So you'll notice she kept an incredibly low-key role. But suddenly in this campaign, we're seeing a lot more of her. Uh, we saw her State of the Union address, you know, being there, pinning medals on veterans' chests and doing all these things. And she gave the big speech, of course, well, I say at, at the virtual convention, which I wasn't at, but then there wasn't much to attend, really, was there? So that, I think that's the one difference between 16 and now is that she's very much more involved in this campaign. And I think, I think from his perspective, that's a very good thing. I'm Katie Morley and I'm the Telegraph's consumer champion. It's a big job title, but what it really means is I spend my days helping readers who are being ripped off. I've heard from victims of wicked scams, insurance customers who can't get payouts and customers who've been treated badly by retailers. I've seen it all and I've managed to win back over £2 million for our readers in a year. But I couldn't have done it without our subscribers. And that's where you come in. If you subscribe to The Telegraph, you're helping fund public service journalism like this, as well as great podcasts like the one you're listening to. So, to support what we're doing and to get unlimited access to a huge range of world-class journalism, head to telegraph.co.uk slash audio, where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. And after that, it's just £2 a week. That's telegraph.co.uk slash audio or click on the link in the show notes to this episode. Just going back to 2016, Hillary Clinton used your Mississippi well, rally, didn't she? Well, this um, was hilarious. Well, yeah, you can say what, she said, what she said about you. This was hilarious. So after the Mississippi event, we went out on the town, seemed to get to bed a bit later than perhaps I should have done. <laughs> And I'm sitting the next day. It's like midday. I'm sitting at Jackson Airport, tiny little airport in the coffee bar. And CNN is playing. And they go live to a Hillary Clinton press conference where she says, you know, that Donald Trump has sunk to new depths. Has called for a bar on the children of legal immigrants from public schools and health services has said women are, and I quote, worth less than men and support... You know, he's got the misogynist, racist... I forget all the different... I mean, it must have been everything under the sun apart from war criminal um, that she accused me of. I mean, we had a real, real go. Um, and I sat there watching CNN and watching Hillary, and I thought, well, thank you very much. You know, you've now actually made me, made me something the presidential candidates are arguing about. And then you about. became a fixture in the spin room, didn't you? So you, you that went... gave me a, she gave me a platform mm. because suddenly CNN wanted to interview me. MSNBC wanted to interview me. Fox wanted to interview me. So the obvious thing then was to go to the debates and to be in the spin rooms for the debates. So I think just appearing with Trump on its own wouldn't have been enough. I think Hillary attacking me, attacking Brexit, attacking populism, attacking everything that was going on. Well, there the weren't world. many in the spin room, were there? There was. Well, here's the extraordinary. I think it was thing. Phil Bryant and now the governor of Mississippi and you, basically. I think. The, so, 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 the worst one 
the worst one was the St. Louis debate because we flew in from London, got out of St. Louis, and the phones were going mad. And this was the day the Billy Bush tapes had come out. The comments caught on video. It's become the single most talked about story. The 2005 video obtained. It is vulgar, and we. This is um, grab you by the pussy. Yeah, where Trump had made some, depending how you view it, um, boastful, ridiculous, offensive. I mean, choose whichever side. Well, you called it something else. You said it was. Well, well, I said, I, 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 you know, I said that Trump is an extreme alpha male. You know, he is a breast-beating gorilla. He is the leader of the pack, and this is the way leaders of the pack talk. I also said he wasn't running to be Pope. He was running to be president. <laughs> Those lines are played out across the world. Yeah, yeah. But it was a very difficult moment because we're literally, we're literally there at the airport waiting for the luggage. And I said to Andy Wigmore, I said, well, we've got two choices here. Either we get the next flight out, Caracas will do, and pretend we've never been to America. <laughs> or we have to go and tough this out. So obviously we took the latter option, and I went you know, straight to the news stands and did the CNN and Fox and all the rest of it and made those comments about Trump. Um, but what was interesting was as the day developed, as the next two days developed, there were senators, congressmen, supporters, they were all running for the hills, disavowing Trump. I mean, he virtually... He virtually at that moment became an independent candidate. Mm. Despite being the candidate of the party. Despite the fact no he was... No one in the party backed yep, him or yep. obviously backed him. He was the official nominee of the Republican Party, but that moment was tough. I mean, remember, the establishment Republicans had always hated him. So the sort of Rockefeller Republican establishment had never liked Trump, never liked his style. You know, they were the big globalist And here's a reason why. Here's an obvious reason why they can... And, and this, of course, was proof. Mm. This was proof to them that he was unsuitable to be president, it was also incredibly difficult with the Baptist South. You know, you cannot become a, Republic, a Republican president without the Baptist South. I say the Baptist South, large parts of the Midwest too, you know, where Christianity is still a huge part of everyday American life. Uh, and it turned out, actually, that Mike Pence was a very, very good pick as vice president. I think if Pence hadn't been there, it might have been more difficult to keep some of that Baptist straight Christian vote. But it was a very difficult moment. Everybody had run for the hills and nobody was prepared to defend him. So you had the debate with Hillary and then it was the spin room. And I mean literally in that spin room there was myself, Governor Bryant, Jeff Sessions and Rudy Giuliani. There must have been, I mean, I don't know how many, the Democrats must have had 500 in there. Were you briefed by the Trump team or do you lie me turning up to <laughs> give his say? Well, I mean, I'd obviously spoken to people. Yeah, so you knew what to say and it was done with the <laughs> connivance well, of a knowledge of the, the, of the campaign. The no one knew what to say. No. No one knew what to say. You know, I mean, the, the Trump defence, I guess this was Bannon as much as anybody, was to put four female accusers in the front row of the debate. That's Steve pe Bannon. Pe people who'd accused Clinton of doing things but it was it was like being in a rugby scrum for about an hour and a half so so and again perhaps one of the reasons why he does like me is he knows he knows that at the absolute low point of 16 I didn't run away I did stand there and people ask me Nigel why did you do it how could you you know stand Defend by those comments stand by somebody who'd made these comments how could you be with someone uh, so awful I even heard 
on the Radio 4 Today programme two mornings ago. An American left-wing activist described Trump as a fascist, and the BBC didn't correct it. The BBC didn't, didn't, didn't even question it. So, and my answer to all of those things is, yeah, sure, the comments were pretty ugly, but then you tell me that you've never... Uh, you know, in a certain social situation, perhaps after a drink, said things you'd regret the next morning or done things. You, I mean, we've all said and done things that we would regret, particularly in private. Um, and, well, isn't, it, isn't this a terrible thing to say about women? Well, yes, it is. But then, actually, I'm sure if we were to secretly record hen party conversations, <laughs> we might be. So, uh, but I also made the point. It was him being the big alpha male, him being boastful. It was ugly, but there you are. When you're with him, what's he like? I mean, larger than life. He's a big guy. Oh, firm yeah, yeah. handshake. Well, I mean, dimension-wise, he's big. All he's round. a big fella, right? He's a big fella. When you're with him, um, yeah, he's larger than life, but he has a remarkable way of dealing with people individually. I mean, you know, he is incredibly charming to people in a way that some people might say is a bit old-fashioned. I mean, you know, say for example. There might be a husband and wife in their 50s or 60s, let's say, and they're thrilled to say hello to the president. And he'll say to the bloke, hey, she yours? You're a lucky guy. Now, some <laughs> would say, isn't this old-fashioned? Isn't this outdated? Isn't it? Yeah, but he's a guy of 74, you know, who comes from a certain background. But he's very charming. I've seen, I mean, for example, I've seen a waitress, youngish waitress, you know, serving, his, serving his main course, and say, I really enjoyed your speech today at CPAC. Hey, you were at CPAC? He gets the manager, sit down, and the waitress sits down. And she sits next to the president for half an hour and chats to him. I mean, she's 24 years old or whatever she is. And she won't forget that. And she won't forget that <laughs> as long as she lives. So, he, I mean, in terms of that personal contact with people, I mean, you know, he's the kind of tycoon who goes onto the building site and meets the lads and chats to them and asks how it's all going. You know, that's what he does well. And he's very, very good at it. He's very charming. He's actually very funny. He's actually very funny. Very witty. Clever. Oh, no, he's witty. Well, you see, now, part of the loathing of Trump, and I felt some of that in myself in this country too, because I haven't been to Oxford. So how can I possibly qualify for anything in the world? I mean, I haven't, what, you haven't done PPE? You know, and this incredible snobbery that we have too. Well, it's much the same against Trump. You know, he's not Ivy League. He hasn't done things conventionally. He he finished up in a military academy because school wasn't for him. You know, surprise, surprise. Um, You know, um, so... If you want to sit down and talk to Donald Trump about the classics, then, you know, you might be wasting your time. But if you want to meet somebody who's got remarkable instincts and he's quick, quick at picking up arguments, quick at, you know, and you discuss something, say, hey, just run that by me again. And he gets it. He sees it, particularly as his, his presidential style is very hands on. Yes, he's got some very bright people that he's appointed, you know, the Wilbur Rosses and Betsy DeVosses, and you can go through and see some very smart people, very successful people in that cabinet, and they get on with doing with what they're doing. But this is a president who makes a lot of executive decisions and makes them himself. But he's, when you meet him, he's quite a sharp... He, he, I mean, he's got, he, he's got this stuff coming in from all sides of him. Uh, he's very quick, he's very sharp, but above all what he does... He, he does have some basic instincts and beliefs. It's a little bit like Margaret Thatcher, who always said when confronted with a crisis, you know, go back to first principles. That was always the Thatcher approach to whatever happened. And Trump's a bit like that. And the big question, his hair, 
It is his hair? It is his hair. It's yes. all there. Yes, there's no time. Well, I, haven't, I haven't visited It's not a wig. It. It's not a wig. No, it's not a wig. It's not a wig. It is a... It, he's kind of... It's yellow, but it's, it's his you, hair. Yeah. Well, well, there's nobody in America who doesn't have dyed hair. They're all female, so that's what you do. You know, he was actually he was he was actually sort of much gingerer, wasn't he? Twenty, thirty years yes, ago. Yes. Um, that's perhaps the Scottish bit coming out. Which, by the way, I think is underplayed. His he mother's is, from Lewis, was it Lewis? Yeah, that's right. Um, Stornoway. Stornoway. Yeah, Stornoway. Isle of Lewis. Scotland. What what is it that brings you? Back well, when here? your mother's born, and they just a wonderful place. And I do sense that Trump sense through his mother of that Scottish part, that Scottish inheritance that he's got. And it's something that he feels very strongly about. And I would remind some, 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 some listeners and viewers of this podcast, you may not like this guy. You may find him just a bit too out there, a bit too difficult. But remember this point. This is the most pro-British American president we've seen for a very long time and will see probably for a long, long... If We may never get another one. He's not as pro the UK. He's not as popular in the UK, is he? Well, look at the press he's had in the UK. Do you blame the press entirely? Well, how do people form their impression of who the president is? It's almost entirely through UK media because that's what they've been watching. Now, clearly, there's the online world. But uh, Trump has had Trump has never been given a chance from day one. There's been almost nobody in this country prepared to stand up and speak for him. I have. I've never wavered. I've never ever wavered. You know, even Boris kind of chops and changes his mind about whether he likes Trump or whether he doesn't. So, so yes, he, he his popularity in the UK, you know, may not be you know, what I would like it to be. But remember, he is pro the United Kingdom. He wants as close a relationship as possible. You know, he genuinely wants a trade deal that works. And sure, we've got to negotiate agriculture. And and yeah, of course, we've got to do these difficult things. Uh, But I also think going ahead from here in terms of not just intelligence sharing, but in terms of whether NATO is going to survive, I think we've got a very important role to play with this president and indeed with the Europeans too. That's episode one of The Trump Card. Subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss the next episode. Out next Tuesday, when Nigel will be lifting the lid on Mr. Trump, the politician. He'll be telling me why he thinks his friend is the most peaceful US president in recent decades. Unlike all of his predecessors, who were all warmongers. And of course, he'll be recalling the most crucial day in Donald Trump's political life, the day of his election to the White House. From now until the next election, our teams in Westminster and Washington will keep you up to speed on every twist and turn in Mr. Trump's quest for a second term and Joe Biden's attempt to beat him. Listeners can get a one-month Telegraph subscription completely free of charge at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump podcast. Without our subscribers, we simply couldn't make podcasts like this. Please do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this podcast. This episode was produced by Theodora Luludis. The music and sound design was by Tom Pink. Thanks for listening. <laughs>